Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Kansas City, Missouri. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. In the mid to late 2000s, Deborah Bradley separated from her husband, whom she shared a young son with. New to being a single mother, Deborah went out looking for a job and found one at Payless Shoe Source. It's there that she met a man named Jeremy Irwin. He was an electrician who had been called in to work on something at the store. Instantly, Jeremy and Deborah hit it off since they had a lot in common, like the fact that Jeremy too was a single parent to a young son. His son's mother had abandoned the two of them a few years prior, leaving Jeremy with full custody. Deborah and Jeremy began dating and eventually got engaged. With marriage on the horizon, their blended family settled into a one-story house in the 3600 block of North Lister Avenue in Kansas City, Missouri. It was a modest 1,400-square-foot rancher, but had more than enough room for their family of four and even a little extra, you know, if they decided to add to their family, which is exactly what they did. On November 11th, 2010, Deborah and Jeremy welcomed a sweet baby girl into the world. In a sea of boys, there was finally another girl in the house. They named her Lisa Renee Irwin after Deborah's late mother. Lisa's paternal grandparents later told the Today Show that Lisa was a beautiful baby full of life, laughter, and love. They said that Deborah and Jeremy were both kind, loving, and wonderful parents. The next 10 months flew by. Anyone with kids knows that at some point, time just becomes a myth. By the start of October 2011, Lisa was nearing 11 months old and full of personality. She had these big blue eyes and a cute little tuft of blonde hair on the top of her head. Even at 10 months old, there was just something about her. She wasn't a shy baby, she loved everyone, and always had a smile on her face. She loved watching Barney, dancing, clapping her hands, and listening to music. She was also really getting into the solid food life and loved her some bananas and spaghetti. Deborah and Jeremy were counting down the days until they could celebrate their only daughter's first birthday, but they never got the chance. At around 5 p.m. on October 3rd, 2011, Jeremy headed to work at a Starbucks that needed an electrical superhero while Deborah stayed home with the kids. At around 3.45 a.m. on what was now October 4th, Jeremy got home, but something was off. The front door was unlocked, which wasn't normal. What also wasn't normal was the fact that in the wee hours of the morning while everyone was asleep, all of the lights were on in the living room and kitchen. Jeremy walked around the house and turned off the lights as he made his way through, but when he got to the computer room, which is on the opposite side of the house, he realized that the front window was open. Another red flag that something was off. Jeremy went to the window to close it, but as he did, he noticed that the bottom left corner of the screen had been pushed in from the outside. The screen had been pushed so far in that the window couldn't even close. Jeremy thought it was weird, but I don't think it ever crossed his mind that something terrible might have happened. Sure, looking at this through the lens of true crime, we all know where this is leading, but he was in his home, his family's safe haven, and the house was silent, as is to be expected at nearly quarter to four in the morning. 
After dealing with the window, Jeremy went to check on his and Deborah's two sons. Their bedroom was right next to the computer room, so he didn't have to go far. Jeremy found one son in their room, which wasn't too strange because sometimes one of the boys would leave and hop in their parents' bed. So he went to the next room over, which was Lisa's, and noticed that her bedroom door was open, which again was strange because they always kept bedroom doors closed. Nonetheless, Jeremy walked up to Lisa's crib, but she wasn't there. Jeremy went to the next bedroom, which was his and Deborah's, and on the complete opposite side of the house as the computer room and the open window. In there, Jeremy found his other son in bed with Deborah, but Lisa wasn't in there. That is when all of the pieces of the red flag puzzle started to come together and panic set in. Jeremy woke Deborah up and told her that he couldn't find their baby. Being woken up out of her sleep only to be told their only daughter was missing, she instantly started to panic as well. She asked him, what do you mean she's not in her crib? Deborah knew at that moment that something was really, really wrong. They both sprinted around the house, screaming for Lisa, but she was nowhere. Jeremy banged on neighbors' doors to see if she was there, but she wasn't. At around 4 a.m., Jeremy and Deborah went to call 911, but their cell phones were missing from the kitchen counter. Instead, they had to call 911 from Jeremy's work phone. Officers rushed to the Irwin house and got there in record time. They searched for 10-month-old Lisa, but they too were unable to find her. Patrol officers fanned out, starting the search for Lisa, while detectives were called to the scene. Once there, they interviewed Deborah and Jeremy, as well as their sons, who were 5 and 8 at the time. Detectives asked Jeremy and Deborah what happened on October 3rd, from the time they woke up all the way to when they discovered Lisa was missing. They said that on the 3rd, Jeremy came home at around 2.30 p.m. after working the day shift. At around 4.30 p.m., Deborah and her brother went grocery shopping while the kids stayed with Jeremy at the house. Deborah and her brother bought a box of wine, baby wipes, and baby food and got back to the Irwin home roughly 30 minutes later. Then Jeremy headed back out to work at Starbucks, and after that, Deborah's brother left, and she stayed home with the children for the rest of the night. Deborah said that at 10.30 p.m., she fed Lisa, changed her clothes, and put her in the crib with a pacifier, blanket, glowworm toy, and a Barney stuffed animal. After that, Deborah put the two boys to bed and turned off all the lights in the house. She left the computer room window open, but she wasn't sure if she locked the front door. And I think a lot of people might cringe at this, but it seems like one of those moments where you do something so often that it becomes a habit and you can't even remember if you actually did it. Like, did I turn the oven off? After Deborah went to her own bed, her six-year-old son decided he wanted to sleep with her. They went to sleep and didn't wake up until Jeremy got home. Even though there was a baby monitor in Lisa's room, Deborah never heard anything on it. And let's be real here, by 11 months, you're almost hearing phantom noises coming from the baby monitor. The fact that Lisa was missing and she hadn't heard a thing was absolutely terrifying. Like we mentioned earlier, Jeremy got back home at around 3.45 a.m. to find the front door unlocked, lights on in the house, the computer room window open, and baby Lisa missing from her crib. Deborah and Jeremy said their cell phones appeared to be the only things missing from the house besides Lisa. But if their phones went missing, did that mean that someone was in the house when Jeremy got home? Or had he only taken his work cell phone with him? I haven't been able to find a clear answer to that, but it seems like maybe both of their cell phones were in the kitchen the whole time. 
According to HLN, Deborah and Jeremy's sons were interviewed for about 20 to 30 minutes, but they both said they didn't hear anything because they were asleep. After speaking with Baby Lisa's family, detectives had Deborah and Jeremy go to the station for further questioning. They stayed there until 10.30 that night, which is an astronomical amount of time. While Jeremy and Lisa were being questioned for hours on end, the physical search for Lisa was in full swing. Detectives called in other agencies for assistance, including the FBI. Members of law enforcement started pouring in from all over, and by 6 a.m., just two hours after realizing Lisa was gone, they'd established a task force of core investigators. An Amber Alert was issued a little more than an hour after that. By the time lunch came around, authorities had a command post set up in a field near Lisa's home. Their house was in the middle of a residential sea of homes, so looking at the map, it looks like that field was probably about 600 or so feet away from the house. No matter how you slice it, you'd have to walk about 600 feet to get to a plot of land that a house wasn't sitting on. The Kansas City Star reported that the post included a task force bus, portable bathrooms, a Salvation Army tent, mounted patrol officers, police dogs, and all-terrain vehicles. Law enforcement was going full-blown, mission impossible, no holds barred when it came to finding 10-month-old Lisa Irwin. As hard as they tried, the physical search for Lisa did not lead to her whereabouts, but it did lead to some physical evidence. Two streets over, less than 900 feet to the east of the Irwin home, investigators searched a large dumpster in an apartment complex parking lot. Inside of it, they found burned baby clothes. According to HLN, a man reported the dumpster fire earlier that day at 2.19 a.m., less than an hour and a half before Jeremy had come home. The man later told GMA that the flames were shooting several feet into the air, which made him think that an accelerant must have been used. As we know, when the man reported the fire, Lisa hadn't been discovered missing yet, so at the time, it wouldn't have occurred to anyone that the fire might be tied to her disappearance. Once that possible link was figured out, investigators headed straight to the landfill and searched there. If they found anything significant, they haven't shared it with the public. By the end of day one, there was still no sign of Lisa. Investigators held a press conference where the Kansas City Police Department spokesman said they don't believe, quote, some type of domestic or relationship dispute was involved in Lisa's disappearance. The spokesman said the family is being cooperative with detectives. If there were any holes in their story, we would know by now. There are no holes in their stories. There is a 10-month-old who isn't where she belongs, and we are trying to find her. We will keep going bigger as long as we need to. Lisa's disappearance rapidly became international news. The media referred to her as Baby Lisa, and outlets were posting multiple updates per day about the search for Baby Lisa. On October 5th, day two of the investigation into Lisa's disappearance began. The physical search with multiple law enforcement agencies continued. In addition to the searches, investigators set up checkpoints to try and find any potential witnesses. They also went door-to-door -to, -door to see if they could search homes, and it warms my heart to say that more than 300 residents didn't hesitate for a second and volunteered to let the police search their homes. But Lisa wasn't in any of them. Back at the Irwin home, crime scene technicians were looking for any evidence, just anything they could find that might even hint to what happened that night. At that point, one working theory was that a kidnapper had entered through the computer room window and kidnapped Lisa while she was sleeping. 
Once in possession of Lisa, it was theorized that they exited the home through the same window. Though it seems like it would be really hard for a single grown adult to get through a window holding a baby without making a sound. Nonetheless, because of that theory, investigators focused on the computer room. To their surprise, investigators didn't find any fingerprints on the window. It was completely spotless, according to HLN. So did the potential kidnapper wear gloves or did they maybe wipe the window down? While investigators combed through every inch of that house, Jeremy and Deborah continued speaking with investigators. In order to try and narrow down a suspect, they gave the police a list of people who would have crossed paths with Lisa in her daily life. People at the grocery store, utility workers who'd been at the house, friends, classmates, neighbors, acquaintances. But no one on that extensive list led to any leads. Before the day was over, Jeremy and Deborah released a plea to the public. Deborah cried, saying, We just want our baby back. Please bring her home. Jeremy said, Anyone who has her, you can drop her off at any safe place a fire station, a hospital, a church, no questions asked. Deborah added, She's everything. She's our little girl. She's completed our family. She means everything to our little boys, and we need her home. I can't be without her. And they were both visibly shattered. On the morning of October 6th, nearly 100 police officers searched for Lisa in the industrial park and adjacent woods, including manholes, wells, storm drains, and more. No stone went unturned, while media outlets around the world continued reporting on every single move made in this case. While the physical search was still going full steam ahead, Jeremy and Deborah spent all day at the station undergoing more questioning. By the end of the day, Jeremy couldn't take it anymore. It was their third straight day of questioning and he needed a break, so he asked if he could leave the station. Within an hour of Jeremy leaving, the police held a press conference to say that Lisa's parents were no longer being cooperative. They didn't elaborate any further, stating only, I don't have to illustrate how that affects the investigation. That speaks for itself, as if they hadn't just spent three full days in there. Soon after announcing the family was no longer cooperating, the physical command center was packed up and crime scene tape was removed from the home. Go-Go Gadget Ick Factor has been engaged and this looks real shitty. Even if they genuinely felt the only viable information was coming from the parents, if they dip out, you double down. You don't just decide, hey, let's have a press conference, make them look like shady assholes and pack up. However, investigators said they felt like they'd done all they could regarding geographic searches. They'd continue to follow leads to investigate Lisa's disappearance. Following the police department's announcement that Jeremy and Deborah weren't cooperating, the couple told Good Morning America that they weren't not cooperating. Jeremy explained that he needed to take a break from the intensive questioning, which makes a whole lot of sense since he'd undergone three full days of interrogation. His 10-month-old daughter was missing and he couldn't be out there searching for her. Deborah added that the police had become relentlessly focused on blaming her for the disappearance instead of looking for the real suspect. When she couldn't fill in the gaps for them, she said the police told her, you did it, you did it. 
Then they showed her a picture of Lisa and said, look at your baby and do what's right for her. Deborah maintained her innocence, stating she had nothing to do with Lisa's disappearance. From that point on, it seems like the media and investigators were focused on Deborah as their main suspect. The following day, October 7th, Deborah revealed to the Today Show that she had taken a polygraph test two days after Lisa disappeared. She was told that she failed it. When she asked for the results of the test, investigators wouldn't give them to her. They just said, you failed, you killed her, you know where she's at. Jeremy said he offered to take a polygraph test, but the police said it wasn't necessary. Investigators had found surveillance footage of Jeremy working at Starbucks until around 3.30 a.m., so it makes sense that they didn't think he was involved in Lisa's disappearance. They were way more focused on Deborah, the only adult in the home when Lisa went missing. When the police spokesman was asked about the polygraph test, he said he couldn't talk about if either of the parents had taken one. The tension between Lisa's parents and investigators seemed to have softened by October 8th. That day, they all sat down for an interview, and wouldn't you know, the day everything seems to smooth over, investigators returned to the Irwin house to do another search and look for more evidence, but nothing was found. The following day, investigators were back at Lisa's house again. This time, they were trying to recreate how the alleged abduction could have occurred through the computer room window. They wanted to see if it was possible to do, how loud it was, how long it took, and all of that. What they quickly realized was that they couldn't get inside the window without a boost. The window was too high off the ground. The perpetrator would have had to have used something like a bucket or had the help of someone else to get inside. Something we literally talked about earlier in this episode. I cannot fathom how this took them five days to figure out. Even if the perp did have a bucket or accomplice, which is one hell of an either or, they wouldn't have been able to get in through the half-bent window screen without making a ton of noise. It also didn't seem possible that someone carrying a baby would have been able to fit through the bent screen to get back out. Duh. Following the reenactment, investigators felt it was unlikely the perp entered and exited through the window. Again, duh for extra emphasis. While the world's most obvious recreation was being done, Lisa's family spent the entire day handing out flyers and selling t-shirts. Later, they taped large posters and signs to the front of their house and put decals on their cars. On October 10th, investigators started looking into a tip about a man named Jersey who had been in the neighborhood during the time Lisa disappeared. He was known around the area as a handyman who would do odd jobs for cash. HLN reported that Jersey had been in and out of trouble with the law for more than 10 years. He had convictions for arson, burglary, and more, and he was frequently unhoused. But at the time Lisa disappeared, he was staying at a home around the corner from the Irwin house. From the backyard of that house, you can see the burnt-out dumpster where police found the burned baby clothes. Investigators spoke with Jersey, and he fully cooperated. For now, Jersey wasn't a person of interest, but his name would come back up again. Investigators continued following leads, conducting ground searches as necessary. While that was going on, Deborah and Jeremy underwent hours of intense questioning done by a deception expert and former CIA officer. Thanks to HLN, we know some of the things Deborah said during this interview. When asked if she had any involvement in Lisa's disappearance, Deborah said, none. She paused, then added, the only thing I did wrong was drink that night and possibly not be alert, not here. She became visibly upset after that admission. 
the true story of what happened the night of October 3rd then came out. After Jeremy and Deborah's brother left at around 5 p.m. that night, Deborah's neighbor Samantha brought her daughter over to play with Lisa's brothers. At 6.40 p.m., Deborah put Lisa, who was sick with a cold, in her crib. Then Deborah and Samantha sat on the front stoop smoking cigarettes and drinking wine. Deborah estimated she drank between 5 to 10 glasses. At 10.30 p.m., Deborah was intoxicated, so she told Samantha she was going to bed. Deborah went to her room and the boys fell asleep in her bed. She said she wasn't sure if she checked on Lisa before she went to bed, but she knows she didn't shut Lisa's door since it was already closed to make sure she didn't wake up from the kids playing. Deborah admitted it was possible that she blacked out before going to bed, meaning it was possible she didn't hear the abductor. In the footage of Deborah's interview, you can tell that she is just beyond upset with herself. After nine hours of intense questioning, the expert was done interviewing Jeremy and Deborah. He later told HLN that he left the interview believing it was highly unlikely Deborah and Jeremy had anything to do with Lisa's disappearance. Following the interview with the expert, Jeremy and Deborah went on the Today Show together, and Deborah came clean to the world about her drinking on the night of October 3rd, something that wouldn't have been newsworthy at all if her daughter hadn't gone missing the same night. The day of the Today Show was also the day the couple finally hired an attorney. At that point, it was pretty clear that they'd need someone to help them navigate the media shitstorm that was about to rain down. Regardless of the deception expert's statement saying he believed it was highly unlikely either parent was involved in Lisa's disappearance, the public and media didn't care. Instead, they became even more suspicious of Deborah following her drinking confession. They started to question everything Deborah said happened. At first, she said she had checked on baby Lisa at 10.30 p.m. Now she was saying the last check was actually nearly four hours earlier at 6.40 p.m. That widened the window of time where something could have happened to Lisa. Investigators were extremely suspicious of Deborah as well. The same day as their Today Show admission, an FBI cadaver dog was brought into the Irwin home. According to an affidavit, the dog hit on an area near Jeremy and Deborah's bed. This does seem really suspicious until you consider that while cadaver dogs can be an incredible tool, they're not 100% reliable. And I think it's also important to note that despite the purported hit by the cadaver dog, investigators did not cut out any parts of the carpeting in the bedroom. As far as I can find, no noteworthy evidence was found in the bedroom. Over the next few days, investigators continued to search the Irwin home for DNA. But again, nothing of note was found. Then, on October 21st, Good Morning America reported that three witnesses saw a man in a t-shirt walking around holding a baby in the early morning hours of October 4th. You know, really important information here. The first two witnesses were a couple who lived three houses down from the Irwin family. We'll call them the Dufresnes. When the husband went to leave for work at around 12.15 a.m., he saw a strange man in his late 30s or early 40s wearing a t-shirt walking down the street perpendicular to the Irwin home, which would be the street where the backyards back up to the burning dumpster apartment complex. This t-shirted man was holding a baby who was wearing only a diaper and nothing else. It was a little over 50 degrees that night, so naturally the husband wondered why the baby was only wearing a diaper. He immediately went inside to his wife and was like, are you seeing what I'm seeing? So she looked through the window and sure enough, there was a man holding a baby wearing nothing but a diaper. 
The wife later told HLN that when the strange man saw the Dufresnes, he acted like he was going into a nearby house. The husband waited around for a bit before heading off to work. Now, you might be wondering why we're just hearing about this now, because it has a very why didn't you report this to the police immediately vibe. But they did report it to the police the morning baby Lisa went missing. According to the examiner, police initially ruled out the Dufresnes report. However, they would later interview them four times. The Dufresnes weren't the only people to see a man in his late 30s or early 40s wearing a t-shirt and walking around with a baby. A guy named Mike was driving home from work at around 4 a.m. when he passed a man and a baby at an intersection near I-435 about three miles northeast of the Irwin home. Mike stopped on the side of the road and asked if they were all right, and the man said he was fine. Mike then noticed that the baby had only a shirt and diaper on. He wanted to give them a ride, but he couldn't because he was on his motorcycle, so he told the man to put a blanket on that baby before he drove off. There was either two men walking around in the middle of the cold night holding a baby with no pants or coat on in a three-mile radius of the Irwin home, or in that three hours and 45 minutes since the first sighting, the man had found a shirt for that baby. While looking into the man with a baby tip, investigators recovered video footage from a BP gas station less than a mile northeast of the Irwin home, which is a 15-minute walk in in the direction of the baby-wielding man. The video showed an unidentified person walking along the road around 2.15 a.m. The BP manager told CNN, it's unusual to see anyone walking at that time of night. However, the police spokesman said the video showed nothing of value, so it sounds like there was no baby in it. On October 24th, investigators met with the witnesses who saw the man walking around with the baby. At first, they showed Mike photos of potential suspects to see if he could identify the mystery man. He identified one person in the photos, but the identity of that person has not been released. The photo of that person was then showed to the Dufresnes, but they didn't recognize them. They were officially no closer to identifying the man with the baby or the man in the surveillance footage. And as far as I can tell, neither have been identified as of the recording of this episode. On October 28th, a woman named Megan went on Good Morning America and dropped a bombshell. She said that investigators traced an outgoing phone call made from one of Jeremy and Deborah's stolen phones to Megan's phone on the night Lisa went missing. Megan said she didn't answer the call, which ended up lasting 50 seconds, which I do not understand, but maybe it was her home phone. She said she wasn't sure who answered the call, who was on the other end, or anything that was said. Megan said she believes the call came in at 8.30 p.m. However, other sources reported that the call came in at 11.57 p.m. If the call did come in at 11.57 p.m., that's close to the time that the mystery man with the baby was seen walking around the neighborhood. Besides the phone call, police were also able to see that someone used the internet browser and tried to listen to a voicemail on one of the cell phones between 3.17 a.m. and 3.32 a.m. on the night of Lisa's disappearance. The cell phone was being used between one-fifth to one-third of a mile from Lisa's house. And just because maps are your friend, the intersection that leads into the burning dumpster apartment complex is one-fifth of a mile from the Irwin home. 
Megan said she didn't know Lisa or Lisa's family. She hadn't even seen Lisa until her picture was on the news. But Megan did have a tie to Lisa's neighborhood. You see, her ex-boyfriend was Jersey, the unhoused handyman who was staying in Lisa's neighborhood at the time of her disappearance. Following Megan's interview, Deborah told the media that she didn't know Megan. She also said she wasn't sure who made the call to her phone because their stolen cell phones couldn't have made any outgoing calls because their phones were turned off due to non-payment of the bill. So she was truly dumbfounded as to how that call was even made. And here I thought we were getting somewhere. The information about the cell phones and the connection to Jersey made people even more suspicious that he could be involved in Lisa's disappearance. People magazine asked the police about him and his possible involvement, but they said he'd been cooperative with their investigation. They stated, we're satisfied at the moment and we're moving on. That's not to say something may change later where we would like to speak to him again. That's why I'm staying away from the word cleared. Really, truly, the investigation is wide open. We aren't ruling anything out yet. As of this recording, Jersey has not been named a person of interest or suspect in Lisa's disappearance, but people continue to speculate that he was involved. By November of 2011, reporting on Lisa's case started to slow down. There were no longer multiple updates throughout the day, and the tips started to die down as well. In mid-November, Lisa's brothers were allowed to be interviewed by investigators. One of the brothers said he heard tapping on the night Lisa disappeared, but that was about it. By the end of the month, media reports continued to dwindle, as did leads. Only eight detectives were assigned to baby Lisa's investigation, while everyone else went back to working on other cases. As tips stopped coming in as frequently, Lisa's parents continued pleading for the return of their daughter. By April 2012, six months had passed since baby Lisa went missing, and there was still no sign of her anywhere. Investigators said Lisa's case was still classified as a missing or abducted child. There was no evidence she had died. Jeremy and Deborah's attorney spoke with the Kansas City Star to mark the six-month date. He didn't allow the couple to be interviewed, but he made sure the star knew that they were cooperating with law enforcement. The attorney later told HLN that he didn't allow interviews with the media because the reports were no longer about finding Lisa. They were about interrogating the parents. Everything Deborah and Jeremy said was scrutinized by the public, and it was counterproductive to their mission, which was to find Lisa. At that point, baby Lisa's case was no longer being featured on national TV every day, so Deborah started the website findlisaerwin.com to help more people learn about the case. That website is still up today. In May, Jeremy and Deborah went on the Today Show to talk about the lack of progress in the investigation. They said they told the detectives in November about a lead, but six months later, they still hadn't heard anything about it. The couple explained that back in November, they looked over their bank account and noticed three suspicious transactions. Two were flagged by the bank and denied, but a third went through, and this charge was for $69.04 made on November 6th. When they looked up the website the card was used on, they found that it was a British website used to quote-unquote legally change children's names. A pretty huge fucking red flag. Obviously, Jeremy and Deborah thought this could be a major lead, so they immediately contacted authorities, but they never heard back. 
Following Deborah and Jeremy's interview, the Kansas City Star spoke with the police about the bank charges, and they said that detectives did look into the debit card purchase, but when they went to view the website where the $69.04 charge was made, it redirected them to a stationary website. The police said this charge didn't appear to be connected to Lisa's disappearance. It seemed to be just a stolen card number, which is still illegal and a real concern in the middle of a missing baby investigation. Also, information they probably should have shared with the parents of said missing baby. Lisa's parents were clearly unhappy with that news because according to them, investigators had waited too long to check out the lead and now the website was completely different. By the one-year mark, only two people were working on the case, a local detective and a federal agent. Investigators said they had worked on nearly 1,700 tips, including 500 baby sightings around the world. They also checked around 100 leads twice just to make sure they were covering all bases, but there was still no sign of baby Lisa. The police issued a statement that they said they were still facing the same issue with their investigation. They hadn't been able to sit down with Deborah one-on-one since the first days of the investigation. What are they even saying? The statement specifically said police continue to have questions on which only she can provide answers. Jeremy and Deborah's attorney was not happy with the police department's statement and said, our doors are open, the phone is open, they have our numbers, and they can call. Lisa's parents issued an email statement to mark the one-year date as well. They thanked everyone for their support and asked people to continue sending in tips. They said, every day we wake up hoping it will be the day she comes home to us. Until that happens, our family will continue to be incomplete without her. Over the course of the next few years, things slowed down significantly in Lisa's case. Her parents continued trying to raise awareness. For every anniversary, they held vigils. They also continued running their website, Find Lisa Irwin. If they received any tips, they passed them along to law enforcement. In October of 2013 and February of 2016, age progress photos of Lisa were released in the hopes that someone would recognize her, but no one did. In October 2016, five years had passed since Lisa disappeared. Investigators said they didn't have anything new to share, just that the case was still open and detectives followed up on leads as necessary. Deborah spoke to the Kansas City Star to mark the date, and when asked if it gets easier every year, she said, it's the opposite. It gets harder each year. We get close to this time and we keep thinking it has been another year gone and she's not home. The holidays are around the corner and her birthday. It's hard to function and harder to cope. Deborah said she still has faith that she will see Lisa again one day, saying, I feel it in my gut. I have a mother's intuition. I feel she's out there. Jeremy and Deborah also spoke to KCTV5. They stated they believe Lisa was kidnapped, then sold. Jeremy added, this was not a one-person deal. The couple talked about how investigators initially zeroed in on Deborah as a suspect and how it caused tensions. Deborah said she doesn't hold a grudge against the police. She understands that they were just trying to do their job. She added, it's just after some point in time, you gotta look elsewhere.
In January of 2018, an age progress photo of what Lisa would look like at seven years old was released. Deborah told Fox 4 KC, I do believe she's alive. I've never thought for a second anything otherwise. I hope she's still in the country, and I hope that with this new age progression, I think that she has to be in some sort of school and or out in the public. And with this new age progression, I'm hoping that someone will notice her and give us the tip we need to help get her home. In October of 2020, another age progress photo of Lisa was released. It shows what she would look like at age nine. As of this recording, this is the photo used on her missing posters. The following year, Lisa's parents spoke to KSBH 41 News to mark 10 years. They maintained that they had nothing to do with Lisa's disappearance. Deborah said that comments about her being involved used to bother her, but as time has passed, she's developed thick skin. She said, we know the truth and there are people looking for her that know the truth and are trying to get her home. Deborah and Jeremy discussed theories on what might have happened. Deborah said, I think that someone was paid to come into our home. Our house was watched and they waited for the perfect opportunity. Jeremy never really worked nights. I absolutely believe she was human trafficked. KSBH reached out to the police for an update and they said they had no suspects and that they would not discuss details of the case because it's still an active missing persons case and investigation. As much as I hate to say this, that's the last update we have on baby Lisa. Today, her family continues fighting for answers. Posters are still featured on the front of the Irwin home and Deborah still runs findlisairwin.com. She, Jeremy, and their sons have all submitted their DNA to databases in the hopes that someday they will find a match to Lisa. Lisa is heart-achingly missed by her family, and Deborah and Jeremy are prepared for when Lisa comes home. She still has her bedroom in the home, her closet is filled with clothes that would fit her current age, and she has dozens of presents from 12 previous birthdays to open. As a reminder, at the time of her disappearance, 10-month-old Lisa had blue eyes and a small tuft of blonde hair on the top of her head, as well as fine baby hair. She was 30 inches tall and weighed between 26 and 30 pounds. She was wearing purple shorts and a purple shirt with white kittens on it. She had two bottom teeth and a birthmark on her right outer thigh that looks like a freckle. If anyone has information about the disappearance of Lisa Irwin, please call 1-800-843-5678, which also trans to 1-800-THE-LOST. You can also call KCPD at 1-816-474-8477. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Lisa's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley and join me on TikTok tonight at the Heather Ashley at 8.30 p.m. Eastern where you go live with me and we talk about today's case and all other true crime cases on your mind. To get access to ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you love the podcast, feel free to leave a review. It makes my day every single time. And if you have a case you'd like to hear covered, share it with Big Mad True Crime on social media because all cases are covered by listener request. I'll be bringing you a brand new case next week, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. Thank you.